Lord in prayer and ask him to bless our time in the word. Our Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for this church, the Cornerstone Bible Church. We thank you, Lord, for the faithful preaching of your word here and the faithful ministry of your people, Lord, in this place. Uh, Lord, that the heralding of the, uh, the powerful gospel that takes place not only uh, in this building, but as the saints of this church spread throughout Sacramento and the Thomas and, and beyond. We thank you, Lord, for the, for the VBS, that uh, outreach that has just concluded. And we pray, Lord, that there will be great spiritual fruit in the life of these young children, that they would come to hear, believe, and obey the gospel of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, that they've been singing about. We pray for their parents, some of whom, Lord, may uh, not yet know you, may have not yet bowed the knee in faith and repentance, who have never been regenerated by the work of the Spirit yet. We pray that you would be gracious to them today, and that through the gospel shared, through VBS, and through the word preached this morning, that you would do what you promised to do in, in Titus, that you would redeem for yourself a people for your own possession, zealous for good deeds, and get glory to your great name. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for all that you have done to save us from our sins and to bring us into the family of God. Would you help those who are not yet saved to have their eyes open today and those who have been saved, Lord, to be reminded why they're here and what their role is until you take them to be with you or you come for us. Would you help us in Jesus' name? Amen. Luke chapter 8 and verse 26, I'm reading this morning from the ESV. You'll pardon that as a missionary over to England uh, to be using that translation. We begin reading in verse 26 of Luke chapter 8. Then they sailed to the country of the Garrisons, which is opposite Galilee. And when Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time he had worn no clothes and he had not lived in a house but among the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man, for many a time it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles. But he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. Then Jesus asked him, what is your name? And he said, Legion, for many demons had entered him and they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside and they begged him to let them enter these. So he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. Verse 34. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. Then the people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all the people from the surrounding country of the garrisons asked him, that is Jesus, to depart from them. For they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and returned. Verse 38. 
The man from whom the demons had gone begged him, that is Jesus, that he might be with him. But Jesus sent him away saying, return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. This is the word of God. This passage in Luke chapter 8, verses 26 through 39, answers three primary questions. So if you're taking notes, and I recommend that you do take notes, um, one person said to Pastor John MacArthur, he's our, he's our pastor down at Grace Community Church, they said, um, we're, we're taking notes, it's not that we want to remember what you preach, it's just that we want to hold it against you when you're wrong. And uh, I've never forgotten that, but... We know, like Abraham Lincoln said, that a short pencil will go a lot further than a long mind. So we want you to be able to examine everything carefully and hold on to that which is true. But this passage answers three primary questions. The first question goes back to um, earlier in verses 22 to 25, the previous context where the disciples are on the Sea of Galilee in the boat and Jesus is asleep and the storm is breaking up the boat and they wake Jesus up and he, he speaks to the winds and the waves and, uh, and he hushes the winds and the waves and at the end of it, they're, they're left asking, according to Matthew chapter 8, verse 27, the parallel passage, who is this man? Who is this man that even the winds and the waves obey him? That's the first question that our text answers and, and, and contributes to answering in verses 26 through 39 with the demoniac. The second uh, question or second of three primary questions this passage uh, answers is, why has this man come? And that's relevant not only for the context of the narrative in verses 26 through 39. Who is this man? That even the winds and waves obey him. Why has this man, to whom the winds and waves obey him, why has he come? And the third question, primary question that this passage asks or answers is, what does this man who has come expect from those he delivers? What does he expect from those he delivers? Those are the three primary questions that I think uh, is part of the authorial intent According to Luke chapter 1, verse 3 through 4, Luke is uh, writing the events of the Gospel of Luke and, 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 the, um, and the sequel, the book of Acts. Yeah, even the events found here in chapter 8, he's writing in chapter 8 so that Theophilus, quote, may have certainty concerning the things he has been taught uh, and, 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 and especially about the person and work of Jesus. I think that's pretty relevant in our postmodern world today where no one's making any conclusions about anything except what you heard from our children today, your children today, uh, that there is such thing called truth, right? It's not all relative. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. That's the words of Christ. So though we live in a world that is afraid to reach conclusions about Jesus and about truth in general, in Christ specific. And Christ is not a 21st century postmodernist. And neither are you if you're a true believer. You believe that there's truth, and that's in Jesus Christ. 
And so Luke is writing this. Isn't that interesting that Luke, even in that first century, has to write so that Theophilus would have a bit of certainty about what he'd been taught about the person and work of Jesus. In other words, the stated authorial intent of Luke is to bolster the faith of Theophilus. That is, that Theophilus may have the strength of certainty about the person and work of Jesus. So if we were to take the previous context, Luke, 20, Luke 8, 22 to 25, we would see what is Theophilus and what are you and what are you and me supposed to learn about the person and work of Jesus. Well, in chapter 8, verses 22 to 25, when Jesus calms the sea, we are to see clearly that Jesus shows his power over the forces of nature. But in our passage, in verses 26 through 39, Jesus is not going to show his power over the forces of nature, but he's going to show his power over the forces of darkness. In our text, Jesus is going to show his power over the forces of darkness by delivering a man completely in the grip and power of demonic, of demonic darkness, demonic forces. So if you're taking notes this morning, uh, there are two lessons about deliverance. Two lessons about deliverance that result in the exaltation of Jesus Christ that I want us to look at from this passage. Two lessons about deliverance so that everyone here will look to Christ alone for their own deliverance, your own deliverance. You will not look to yourself. You will not look to the church. You will not look to uh, the pastors, the elders, your family, your parents. You will look to Christ alone. As the one and only one who can deliver you. And another maybe pastoral hope or goal that I have as preaching this message is that those who, of you who have been delivered by Christ through the gospel. Those of you who have already been saved. Will become more and more like this delivered man at the end of this narrative. I want to be more like him. And my prayer is that you'll be more like him at the end of this narrative. Well, what's the first lesson that we are to learn about deliverance? It's found in verses 27 through 33. First of all, there is a need for deliverance. And really, the, the, the whole sermon has two points, not three today. The first point is the longest. If Steve Lawson were here, he would say that I have a big porch and a small house uh, in the sermon, but that's okay. Um, but there's a need for deliverance. And the second main point is uh, there's a response to deliverance. So there's your two heads, the two main points of the outline. There's a need for Jesus's deliverance. And there's two details in verses 27 and following that prove this man here in our text needs deliverance. The first detail is the man's description. That proves he needs deliverance. And secondly, is the man's recognition of Jesus. His description and his recognition of Jesus. These two observations prove that this man needs Jesus' deliverance. Incidentally, in verse 27, he's a man from the city. And this is going to be important in verses 34 and 39. Uh, this is an, uh, a comment about his local origin. But notice in verse 27, you'll see his spiritual condition. He was the one who had a demon. You'll see his physical condition. He had he wore no clothes. You'll see his current residence in verse 27. He had not lived in a house, but among the tombs. And you'll see, fourthly, his description as someone who the length of captivity to darkness that only Luke's gospel tells us with that prepositional phrase for a long time. This man's description 
of being demon-possessed, wearing no clothes, living among the tombs, and for a long time tells us and proves that this man needs deliverance. But there's a second detail that proves this man needs deliverance, and that's his recognition about Jesus. Will you make three observations with me about this man's recognition of Jesus in verse 28? Look down in the text there, and you'll see, when he saw Jesus... He cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. The first observation that we must make about the man's recognition of Jesus is this. Without an introduction, the man knew Jesus' name. Now, some of you I've never met before. You've never met me, but we've had an introduction. And uh, even though we haven't exchanged words, you know a little bit about me. I know virtually nothing about you until you tell me. And uh, but there's an introduction necessary. You didn't. I didn't just stand up in the pulpit without an introduction. You say, oh, well, that's uh, that's Pastor Tom over at Grace Bible Church Rugby. I know who he is. I know for 20 years they've been over there in the UK. No, an introduction is necessary in most of our lives. But here in this context, without an introduction, this man knew Jesus' name. There's a suddenness. Uh, Jesus just steps off of the boat. The parallel gospel accounts tell us when this uh, when this uh, event, this man meeting Jesus uh, comes into view. Jesus just steps out of the boat and the man knew Jesus's name. What have we to do with you, Jesus, son of the most high God? The man knew Jesus's name. Now, what does the name Jesus mean? You're you're in a well-taught church. I know we're uh, six months away from Christmas or five months away from Christmas now that we're in early July. So the, the clock is ticking. But around Christmas time, we, we, read, the, we read the Christmas story and, and where, where we read that Jesus is going to be given that, that this baby, Mary's to name this baby Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Uh, it, it, the, the work that Jesus is going to do is connected with his name. Uh, the, the word save and uh, uh, save his people from their sins is the word sozo in Greek. It means to save, it means to rescue, or it means to deliver. And it's the same word uh, that, uh, that we see here in our text in the name of Jesus. This man that needs sozo, who needs to be saved, who needs to be delivered, who needs to be re- rescued... Because of his demonic possession and being in bondage to these demonic forces, this man who is in utter need of deliverance is in the presence of Yahweh delivers. That's what Jesus' name means. Don't miss that. It's uh, the New Testament equivalent of Yahushua or Joshua in the Old Testament. Yahweh saves or Yahweh delivers. Isn't that coincidental? Uh, isn't that exciting that the, the man who, who needs to be delivered just happens to come into the presence of the only one who can really deliver him? Yahweh delivers. Jesus, the man needing deliverance, spoke to Yahweh delivers. But there's a second observation that we need to make about this man knowing Jesus' name. I want you to notice that this man in need of Jesus' deliverance is not seeking Jesus' deliverance. 
Do you see that in the text, or am I importing that idea into the text? I, I think it reads quite clearly. G, G, what have we, what have I to do with you? That's not a warm welcome. I mean, that would be quite a cool way of saying, uh, what are we to do with you? We don't want anything to do with you. What are you doing here? Go away. We're going to see that at the end of the chapter where the herdsmen and where the people of the city actually just tell Jesus, please go away. We don't want you here. And that's exactly what this man who's in the grip of darkness is saying. I don't want anything to do with Jesus. I don't want you here, Jesus. I don't want to hear anything about Jesus. I grew up in a Roman Catholic family. Tried to share the gospel with many in my family. And I would try as I start to share the gospel with some of my most loved family members. They would say, Tommy, that was when I was very little. Tommy, uh, you're doing it again. What am I doing again? Uh, you're, you're getting onto that religious talk. Uh, we don't want anything to do with that Jesus. That may be good for you, but I'm fine without Jesus. And in this situation, this is what this man, this is, this man is trapped in darkness. He needs the deliverance that Jesus, that Jesus brings. And by the way, he's not seeking Jesus' deliverance. He's not seeking Jesus. But this is another example of Jesus seeking out the sinner who was fast bound in sin in nature's night. If I were to quote Charles Wesley in 1738, Jesus is the seeking savior. He came to seek and to save that which was lost. Without an introduction, the man knew Jesus's name. Secondly, second observation, without an explanation, the man knew Jesus's true identity in verse 28b. When he says, what have you to do with me in the ESV? Jesus, son of the most high God. Just think about those words. Jesus, son of the most high God. Think about how theologically accurate they are. Think about the Christological truth that they're communicating about the person and work of Jesus. He's not just a man. He's the son of the living God, the most high God. And, 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 and if you know about Jesus as the Son of Man, that's not primarily a reference to his humanity. It's primarily a referral back to the book of Daniel, where the Son of Man is given divinity or deity as being God the Son. Okay, so don't miss the Christological accuracy of the demons as they address Jesus. Uh, and what I'm trying to say is that demons have a more accurate picture than many people who regularly attend church in a, in a church that doesn't regularly teach the Bible. They have a they know who Jesus is in all of his power. They know who Jesus is in his true identity. It's not hidden from them. But I want you to know this because this is the most dangerous this is the most dangerous place for people in a well-taught church like yours to, that you could fall into if you're not careful. I want to say that an accurate Christology alone, an accurate understanding alone of who Jesus is cannot and does not save you. If it did, this demon and possessed man would be saved. Well, do you need to know accurate things about Jesus? Yeah, R.C. Sproul taught us, didn't he, before he went to heaven, that you need to know notitia. You needed to know, uh, in, in the Great Britain, here in America, you call them uh, announcements. We have some announcements to make. But in, in, in Great Britain, we call them notices. We're going to give the notices now. And, and this is the Latin word. I only know three Latin words, and R.C. Sproul ta taught them to me. 
uh, noticia. This is the data of the gospel. You need to know the accurate data of who Jesus is. And, and then there's a census. You, you, you need to, where we get the word assent from, you need to believe that the data about Christ from the gospels, from the word of God is true. But Roman Catholicism is filled with millions of people who know the data about Jesus and will assent that it's true. But unless you have the third component, fiducia, faith, you're still going to split hell wide open. You need all three of those components. You need to know the true doctrine of Christ found in the scriptures. You need to believe that it's true. And you need to rest in trust and believe in Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sins and for it to be reconciled to a holy God. And without faith, it is impossible to please God. For those who come to God must first believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. I guess the point I'm trying to make is just if you think that you're saved and forgiven for your sins because you know a lot of data about Jesus. John MacArthur, or R.C. Sproul said, if you think that you're saved only because you believe correct things about Jesus, all that does is qualify you to be a demon. I don't know if you're asleep or if you heard that. But just believing right things about Jesus does not save you. Without faith, you cannot be saved. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourself. Salvation or faith is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. And so, without explanation, the man knew Jesus' true identity. Third observation, without hesitation, the man knew Jesus' power. Notice in verse 28, I beg you, do not torment me. I beg you. The use of the word beg indicates that they knew Jesus' power. This word beg, deomai, it means uh, to pray or to beg or to ask. It's used of people who are desperate in the Gospels, like in Luke 5.12. It's referring to a man full of leprosy who begs Jesus to heal him. And it's used of other desperate human beings uh, in, in, in in the New Testament. In, in, cha- in, in chapter 8, verses 31 and verse 32, you'll see these words, and they begged, and they begged. This is a different Greek word. This is a parakaleo. This is where we get prayer language from. Uh, they, to, to call alongside of, as in, as in uh, a matter of prayer. And so we might ask, are they, are they praying to Jesus like believers would pray to Jesus? No, but they're certainly begging him as demons. They're certainly begging him. In other words, without hesitation, they know Jesus's power through the use of using this word beg. But there's a second word that's used that there at the end of that verse that indicates they know Jesus's power. And that's the word torment. Torment. This is a, a word that means to subject to severe distress, to subject to punitive judicial procedures, the lexicons say. Uh, it, 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 this word uh, torment is used uh, in Matthew chapter 14, verses 24, to speak about a boat battered by the winds and the water. Now, what's the previous context to our passage here in verses 26? They were on the sea where the winds and the waters were battering the boat. And those winds and waters were almost breaking apart that boat, the, 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 um, the blows were so severe and so constant and so frequent and so significant. And this is the, the same word that's here for, for torment. Matthew 8, verse 29, the parallel passage to ours in Luke 8, tells us, have you come to torment us before the time? 
Now we're talking about eschatology. All right? Now, Pastor, I'm going to leave that to you and to the elders to, to really make all that full and clear. But these demons had a correct understanding of the power of Christ, His true identity, and they know something about their coming judgment. They, they, they know that Jesus is going to be involved in their coming judgment. You know how many people believe that about Jesus today? I don't know. Must be so small. Have you come to torment me, torment us before the time? Just think about it. Maybe you haven't thought about that uh, today until we read this passage. The idea, uh, the idea of Jesus tormenting anyone? Doesn't that sound counterintuitive? Doesn't that sound like uh, it goes against everything you heard uh, in Sunday school when uh, some of us were raised up? With, it, it changes the flannel graph Jesus altogether, doesn't it? So you might have to step back from your Betty Luke and flannel graph and, and, and take a different look about the person and work of who Jesus is because Theophilus needs to know Jesus like this and you need to know the, Jesus like this. Jesus tormenting anyone, including a demon, is countercultural to our biblically ignorant world. You see, Jesus is often uh, portrayed as a soft, effeminate man who never stepped on an ant. Isn't that right? Am I wrong or what? Speak to me. Yeah? Yet I suggest that the, uh, that the real portrait of Jesus is found in Revelation chapter 1, verses 12 through 18. Now, many years ago, when we came to the church here, we had uh, prayer cards. And one of the repeating elements of our prayer cards is that British flag behind us. You know why? That's deliberate. Because we want people to know immediately, without needing to look deeper, what country are they with? Where, where are they at? And how can we pray for them? But our family's photo on the front has changed over the years. This is the latest iteration uh, uh, of it. And do you know that there's a parallel as people read the gospel and study Isaiah 53, and so you should, and Revelation 5 makes it clear that we are always going to be giving thanks to the Lamb, uh, seeing Him as if He had just been slain. There's always going to be a recognition and an understanding that Jesus is, has been the, made the atonement for sinners like you and me throughout eternity. That's not going to go away. But let me tell you something about Jesus, our Jesus, your Jesus and my Jesus who saved me. He is no longer on the cross. And he's no longer being taunted. And he's no longer being mocked and ridiculed. If you be the son of God, come down from the cross. They're no longer taunting him. Do you know what Jesus is like today? It's right in Revelation chapter 1 verses 12 through 18. He is the glorious Christ. His eyes burn with like fire, his hair is as white as snow, his feet are shod like bronze. Are you kidding me? He is not the, he is not the weak and lowly Jesus as he was came in his humility, according to Philippians 2, in his first advent. He is the glorious Christ. And as the glorious Christ, he walks among the candlesticks. He's not an absentee Lord in the church. He's ever present with the churches. So if, if you need to update your prayer card of who Jesus is, let me recommend you go to Revelation chapter 1 through 12 uh, through 18 because this is, the, this is the Christ that the demons were considering. He was veiled in, in humanity, robed in human flesh, but they know who He is. And they're trembling. They're shaking. 
Remember John 5.22, for the Father judges no one, the Bible says, Jesus said, but has given all judgment to the Son. Do you, have you thought about the implications of that verse, John 5.22? The Father has given all judgment to the Son? Revelation chapter 14, just a few chapters before our scripture reading this morning. Revelation chapter 14, verses 9 through 11, speaks about those who will receive the mark of the beast. And it says that he, that person who receives the mark of the beast, shall be tormented with fire and brimstone, listen, in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. Does that change your picture about Jesus? It sure changed mine. He's no longer the suffering Savior. He's the glorious Christ. And every knee shall bow. And every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And every knee shall bow. The demons know they will face Jesus on the day of judgment. And my dear lost friend, so will you. You will stand Before this same Jesus who died so that sinners like you and me can be forgiven for our sins. Receive the forgiveness of our sins and receive the adoption as sons and daughters of the living God. The one who died on the cross is the one who's going to judge every person, every eternal soul in eternity, including yours. The Lamb of God who died on the cross is the same Lamb who will judge these fallen Angels called demons. He will judge those who receive the mark of the beast in Revelation. And he will judge every unbeliever who enters eternity without the salvation that only Jesus Christ provides. Today for you, if you are, if you are not saved, today is a day of grace. Today, salvation is open to you. I'm not saying that we can add to the number of the elect. I don't believe that. But I don't know who's elect. I can't, Spurgeon said, we can't lift up your shirt tail to see if there's a big E stamped on your back, Pastor. You know that, right? So we preach the gospel to everybody and let God save his people. And he will save his people. And Paul said, I do all things for the sake of those who are chosen. And he said that from a, from a prison, his, from a prison cell. Why was he in prison? For preaching the gospel. And do you notice, lastly, about this word torment in verse 28? Look down, if you will. I beg you, do not torment me. Don't miss the irony here. What's the the irony? Here's the irony. These demons beg Jesus not to do to them what they have been doing to this man. Do you see that? Do not torment me. They've been tormenting this poor man... The other gospel account said that there were two demoniacs. Luke focuses on one. Most scholars believe it's just the primary or the ringleader of the two. But for whatever reason, this is Luke's emphasis. These demons beg Jesus not to do what they've been doing to this man. And can I remind you of that small prepositional phrase? They've been doing it to him for what? For a long time. So just in case you you began to feel a little compassion... You know, a little, oh, Jesus, I hope you don't hurt these demons. Uh, We're not going to talk about the pigs uh, this morning. We can talk about that at another time. But 
So these three observations about the man's recognition of Jesus, without an introduction, he knew Jesus's name, without an explanation, he knew Jesus's true identity, and without hesitation, the man knew Jesus's power. Now, I want you to look at verse 30, because our time is running out, and two worlds are about to collide as Jesus asks this demon, what is your name? And they say, legion, for we are many. Now, in the time of Caesar Augustus, a legion was the name given to a group of 6,000 Roman soldiers. And I know what you're going to, what you're already thinking. Is a Roman legion the same as a demonic legion? Right? I knew you were going to ask that question. I don't know. I have no idea if there's 6,000 demons like a Roman legion. Or let's just say there's only half. Let's say that there's 3,000 demons. You know, do you remember in Acts chapter, is it 19? Verses 11 through 20, where the seven sons of Sceva, they're trying to cast out one demon. Remember that? And they, and they, and they, I adjure you by the, by the gospel that Paul preaches. Remember what that one demon says? Jesus we know, and Paul we recognize, but saying to the unbelieving sons of Sceva, the demon says, but who are you guys? One demon. And, and, and the Bible says in verse 16 of Acts chapter 19 that he leapt on them, he mastered them, he overpowered them. One demon. Jesus is standing in the presence of legion. And who's quaking and who's not quaking in their boots? Well, Jesus isn't quaking. The disciples behind him are probably like, you know, I'm getting behind Jesus here, you know, on the seashore there. No, these demons are quaking in their boots. Two worlds are about to collide. But we have to ask the question, why does Jesus ask the question? I mean, if Jesus is the son of the most high God, God the son, doesn't he know everything? I mean, isn't God omniscient? That's how they say it in Britain. Omniscient? Omniscient? He is. He doesn't ask the question because he doesn't know the answer. He asked the question because people who are with him on that day, namely his disciples, are trying to figure out who is this man? And he's asked the question so that you and I will know who this man is as well. The, the closest parallel to two worlds colliding is found in 2 Kings six fourteen to 17, where Elisha is thwarting the king of Syria's attempt to kill the king of Israel Elisha and his servant go to the city of Dothan. The king of Syria hears about it. He has his troops and their chariots and their horses march to the city of Dothan overnight so that when the man of God's servant gets up early in the morning for his morning cup of coffee, he stands out on the balcony there in Dothan and surrounding the entire city of Dothan is the Syrian army with with uh, with the chariots and with horses and with soldiers. And he says to Elisha, he says, we're in trouble. And, and, and Elisha says to his troubled servant, quote, do not be afraid. He says this, for those who be with us are more than those who be with them. And Elisha prays, oh, Lord, please open his eyes. Listen, now, this is important for Luke 8, that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire. All around Elisha. These aren't Syrian horses. They're not Syrian chariots. They're heavenly chariots. Heavenly horses. 
And the point is, is that even a servant of the prophet Elijah couldn't, Elisha could not see, did not have the spiritual eyes to see that two worlds are always colliding. The physical world and the spiritual world. Just like they are right now here in this auditorium. If you only see what your physical eyes can see, you're missing what the Bible speaks about the spiritual world. That there are forces, there are battles, there's conflicts. And particularly for you who don't yet know and love Christ, there's an immaterial part of you, your soul. And there is a battle taking place for your soul to keep you from believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. There is a war going on in the spiritual realm so that you might not hear, believe and obey the gospel. It's happening. This passage tells us that there's a spiritual world. And in the same way that Elisha needed to pray for the eyes of his servant to be open, Jesus said, what is your name? So for, for two primary reasons. Jesus pulls back the veil and reveals what's happening in the unseen spiritual world. Jesus wants his disciples then and now to see two things they would have otherwise missed. Number one, on the road, on the, on the seashore that day, what looked to be like Jesus against this demoniac, what looked to be mano y mano. That's what we would say, right, in Spanish, right? One man versus one man. It wasn't one man versus one man. It was one man versus a legion. And second thing that his disciples needed to see was while it was one man versus legion, it was no fair fight. No fair fight. You know why? Because these demons were standing in the presence of their creator. These demons were standing in the one who holds them together by the word of his power. These demons were standing in the one who will judge them on that great day. And they knew it. But the disciples were asking, who is this man? And it was no fair fight. Let me say it this way. Great numbers do not always mean, or greater numbers do not always mean greater power. Remember Gideon when the Lord said, there's still too many of you for me to give the victory into your hands. It's just an illustration. Oh, my time is gone. I will say this. What does a weaker army do when it sees it's vastly outmatched by its opponent? It sues for peace. That's what they do. They're vastly outmatched by Jesus. And so they say, please don't torment us. There, there's a response to Jesus's deliverance and my time is is gone. But this is the most important part for you. This is the most important part for each one of you. Really, there are three responses. I told you the second point is much shorter. The first uh, the first part, the first response is the response of the herdsmen found in verse 34. They run away and they tell it. They're afraid. They're terrified. Second response is from the people of the city in verses 35. Excuse me, verse 35 through verse 37. What's the response of the people? Well, the verse 35 tells us they were curious, tells us that they were afraid. And verse 37 tells us that they asked Jesus to depart. And my dear lost friend, those first two responses, the response of the herds people to Jesus's deliverance and the response of the townspeople to Jesus's deliverance. The losers in this passage are the herdsmen and the townspeople. These are the losers. These are the ones who saw Jesus delivered someone else, but didn't want anything to do with him. They wanted him to just go away. They were the losers this day. 
And the one who delivered this man, Jesus, is the one they should have been crying out for their own deliverance. And so I appeal to you, my unsaved friend, do not harden your heart like these herdsmen. Do not harden your heart against Christ like these city people who saw the deliverance of Jesus and someone else but said, no, I don't need that. I don't want that. Please go away. Why should you die in your sin? Turn and live. Repent and live. And all of us who have already been delivered by Jesus. I wasn't born a Christian. The Lord had to bring the gospel to me through faithful servants The Lord opened my heart through the preaching of the gospel and the work of regeneration, granted me faith and repentance. So I know what it's like to be caught in sin's grip. And every one of you have been saved in this place, were in sin's grip before the Lord saved you. You were in the darkness too. And so, my dear lost friend, when we appeal to you, we're appealing to you as those who formerly were in the darkness. We know the ball, the clang, clang of that ball and chain that holds you in bondage this morning. We know that you are enchained and we know that your only hope for deliverance is Jesus Christ. And like this man here, this third man, this demoniac, Jesus says in John 8.36, If the Son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. Free indeed. Truly, really free. There's a response of the man who was delivered. And this is where I end the sermon. Notice his location. This man who was delivered becomes an example for every person delivered or saved by Jesus. You see his location in 35C, sitting at the feet of Jesus. You see his condition changes in two ways. There's an external change and an internal change. Worldly religion is focused on the outside. You know, how long your hair is, the clothes you're wearing, the externals. But Jesus is always about the heart first. And if this man's heart wasn't delivered or liberated, the outside would have never changed. He is clothed and in his right mind. There's an external change because there was an internal change. Notice his petition. He begged in verse 38 that he might be with Jesus. Notice the contrast between the man at the beginning of this narrative. What have I to do with you, Jesus? I don't want anything to do with you, Jesus. Go away, Jesus. You're not welcome here, Jesus. And the same man who has been delivered is saying, can I go with you, Jesus? I, I, I don't want to be separated from your presence, Jesus. You're the only place I want to be, Jesus, is with you. Do you know the difference between being in darkness and light? Those who are in darkness don't have any time for Jesus, don't want anything to do with Jesus. But those of us who have been delivered by Jesus only want to be with Jesus. We, we, he is our Lord. He is our Savior. He is the one who loved us and gave himself for us. There, there, there is no joy in living without being with Christ. Those of us who have been saved know that. We realize that, though the, the world tries to fool us and, 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 and tries to suck us into worldly thinking and loving the things of this world rather than looking to Christ, setting our minds on, on, on the things above where Christ is. It's not the streets of gold we're longing for. It's the person of Christ. His declaration, do you see it? This is in verse 39. The deity of Jesus is found here. Jesus tells him to go throughout the whole city and declare how much, listen, God, don't miss that, God has done for you. And what does the text say about the man, what he does? He goes throughout the city and he begins to declare all that Jesus 
has done for him. That's not a veiled way of saying Jesus is God. That's so overt. Who did this man think Jesus was and is? God, very God. Because only God, very God, can take someone who's dead in their sins and trespasses and give them life spiritually and set them free. He has an understanding who Jesus is, a clear biblical understanding that he is God, very God. And Jesus says, declare how much God has done for you. And he went away proclaiming, that's the word keruso, where we get the word preached throughout the whole city. Listen, how much that, that Greek word Uh, If you were to use English words to describe it, how much it it means the details of what Jesus has done for you. Know your salvation, know the deliverance. Some of you have have forgotten the pit from which you've been pulled as brands from a fire since you've been saved so long ago. You need to remember who you were. You need to remember that conviction of sin and that hopelessness like this man was hopeless. Believer. Before any of us were saved, we were not so unlike this man in our text. I'm not saying we were demon-possessed, but I'm saying that we're just like him in so many ways. We were all bound in chains of gloomy darkness and powerless to deliver ourselves before Jesus saved us. Romans 6, Paul says that before salvation came, all of us were enslaved. 2 Timothy 2.26, before salvation, Paul said all of us were held captive by Satan to do his will. Paul says again in Colossians 1.13, before Jesus delivered us, all of us were held within the domain of darkness, just like this man. We didn't need to be demon-possessed. We had the same spiritual need of deliverance from Christ. Deliverance by Christ. Before salvation All are Satan's offspring or children of the devil. Genesis 3.15 actually says that Satan has a seed. There's a family, an offspring. Jesus said in John 8.44, you have your father, the devil. Or as he says, Paul says in Ephesians 5.8, you once were darkness, but now you're children of the light. So what are people supposed to do who have been delivered by Jesus? That's all of you who know and love Christ here today. You ought to be sitting at the feet of Jesus Like this man. This is your regular posture. To sit at the feet of Jesus. You do that by opening his word. And reading about him. And learning from him. Learning his word. Being taught by him. That's the place of a disciple. It's a place of learning. That's what disciple means. Matetes. A learner. It's a place of love. It's a place of worship. Secondly, your life, those of you who have been delivered by Jesus, ought to demonstrate radical changes in these two primary areas of your life. The internal change. There needs to be an internal change in your affections, in your loves, in your desires, in your will. And then in your actions, your attitudes, and your words. Internal, breaking out into external changes. Thirdly, your heart's desire is to be where Jesus is, like this delivered man. I'm not talking about longing for heaven to avoid pain and suffering. I'm not talking about suicide for those of us who have medical issues or those uh, who are missionaries in foreign fields who are being persecuted. I'm talking about loving Christ so much because of what he has done for you and you recognize it, that you just want to be with him. You want to be with the Lord who lovingly, graciously, mercifully, like he did to this man, delivered you. And fourthly and finally, your deliverance ought to result in you exalting the Lord Jesus Christ. You've not been saved just to avoid hell and the fires of God's wrath. You've not been left behind. You've been saved 
and sent by Christ to glorify Him. That's why you exist. That's why you're still here. Why didn't He just take you to heaven after He saved you? Because you're on a mission for Him like this man was. And what is the mission? Like this man, you have been sent by the Lord Jesus to tell all that He has done for you. Do you need to go to seminary to know how to share the gospel? No. You just need to have been delivered. You don't need a degree. You need salvation. And if you've been saved, you begin to tell all that God has done for you, all that Jesus has done for you, the details of how He has changed your life. Because you're a witness now. He said, as the Father has sent me, even so send I you. Not just to His apostles, but to those who would believe on His name. You are to make Him known and to tell of His greatness among the nations. Wesley penned these words in 1749. Happy if with my latest breath I might but gasp His name. Preach Him to all and cry in death. Behold! Behold! The Lamb. That's this man. That's you. Believer, Jesus delivered you so you would glorify Him by telling others. Whatever happened to this delivered man? You read what it says in the text? Whatever happened to him? Well, we don't know for sure. But as the iris of the gospel lens slowly slowly closes in verse 39, we are left seeing this saved man, this sent man, in the very act of proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus has done for him. It's like he's going into the sunset telling and glorifying Christ as he goes, and he gets smaller and smaller, and the focus of the gospel lens closes. And it's as if he never stopped. That's the picture we have of this delivered man. That's supposed to be your story if you've been delivered. And my story, the iris closes with you telling everyone, particularly your loved ones, all that Jesus has done for you. Well, the townspeople and the people of the city beg Jesus to depart. And you know he does. But not without leaving that city. One delivered person. Father, thank you for our time in your word. Lord, it just there's so much more in this text. There's so much more about your power, Lord Jesus. Lord Jesus, we want to thank you for leaving heaven and coming to earth. Lord, not just to show us the way, but to provide an atoning sacrifice so that we can be forgiven for our sins and born into your family. Thank you for saving this man who was really held captive and in bondage by so many demons. And Lord, is a great example of the spiritual bondage that we were in before you saved us. And just like you delivered that man, you delivered many of us here today. And we pray that you would renew our zeal to tell people about all that you have done for us. And for those of those here, Lord, today who have not yet been delivered, may today be the day of their salvation. We ask this for your glory's sake. Amen.